When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 86, John versus Llewellyn. Last time we talked a lot about Llewellyn becoming the great, as we will describe it. Uh, We discussed how he rose from the lineage of Owen Gwyneth to his father, who was considered a non-factor in the squabbles over the kingdom, to his eventual rise to defeat his uncle and take the crown. One aspect we did discuss at the end of the episode was his relationship with then-current King of England, in this period at least, John. From 1201 to 1204, Llewellyn ap went from being a small lordling in the east of Gwyneth to taking Anglesey, Arvon, Alechweth, Llyn, and Pendlin to add to his smaller domain of the Perfilad, or as called in the English sayings later, the Four Cantrifts. He had married into the family of the King of England and and had created a vassal in the Cantriff of Marionith. The negotiations in 1204 between King John and Prince Llewellyn created the contract that allowed Gwyneth to achieve status under English law. However, it also likely sowed the seeds of its own destruction by requiring that the Prince of Wales, or King of Gwyneth, acknowledge his feudal responsibility to the King of England. He was officially and legally required to show fealty, and he was a subject in name and in fact of the English crown, no different really than any other lord. However, if you are Llewellyn, you are seeing this as a way to pave your eventual takeover of the rest of the native-led kingdoms. Because at the end of the day, he's going to need the English king to give him the tacit approval for him to do that. And make no mistake, Llewellyn early on was amassing more and more territory. He was ambitious and driven and in some ways uh, resembled John and his descendants quite clearly in his uh, attempts to try and grab as much of Wales as feasibly possible. And if he had to do that under the English crown to make it legal... Uh, he was going to do that. So, subject he might be, but there was no doubt that there was an ulterior motive behind that. It would also, of course, spread his influence to the rest of Wales in a ways that would give him the tacit approval of the King of England, his liege lord. In other words, it was a dangerous gamble by, obviously, a very clever and politically sound leader. But John was no fool. He appeared to want to get Wales under his thumb, and many historians have pointed out that John, unlike his his brother, had experience with Wales because he had 
kind of grown his political acumen in the marches. He had land there. And so he'd been dealing with the Welsh princes and their uh, foibles, shall we say. So he, he knew how to play them against each other. And he was very good at it from the time he was able to do it. And that kind of cross-manipulation is, I guess, the biggest example of how Welsh and English relations were going at this point. And make no mistake, both sides wanted something of it, and both sides thought they were on the winning aspect with this. And certainly this will be continuing to be the relationship going forward. In that year, of course, Llewellyn marries the bastard daughter of John, and by doing so, creates a familial relationship, again, as we talked as we talked about last time. So, with that all in mind, certainly John's position and Llewellyn's positions were not by any means uh, firm. Certainly, uh, the foibles of going against the king and going with the king on issues would determine whether or not you gained his favor. And certainly in the Welsh perspective, there would be certain princes and lords that would go from being favored to not favored to back into favor all within the matter of a few years. Uh, the Lord of Powys specifically would become a problem child for both men as he kind of flipped sides at will. And in that case, he became the pawn that John could use with Llewellyn to try and... Uh, play him and, and keep him in check because of course that's the other thing the English are trying to do. They're trying to keep the Welsh kings in check and keep them out of creating a situation of unity because if they start to unify then they become yet another Scotland on their border and I think at the end of the day that was the biggest thing that the English were trying to avoid. They didn't want the Welsh to turn into Scotland because Scotland had already become a problem child and in the future they would become strong allies with France during the Hundred Years War and would be a problem all the way through which is something that I believe that was the point that England was trying to do was to drive that sense of unity out so that they could keep most of the Welsh kingdoms under control if you want to call it that so that most of the time they're fighting each other instead of fighting the English and I think that is what made the English happy because they've seen in the past when the Welsh kingdoms were able to unite under a leader, they would suddenly start to unify more and more of Wales because, of course, other parts of Wales would see this and then balk against the current leadership of the English or the Anglo-Saxons or the Normans or whomever it was at the time. And they would start to combine with their other related tribes and kings and princes and all of a sudden you know while Wales isn't necessarily an ongoing concern it does suddenly become a problem that the king has to deal with and he has to send troops in to deal with which I think largely they didn't really want to deal too often with however this is going to be an oncoming problem for both sides in fact after the loss of Normandy John began, especially from 1204, in fact, to visit Wales in the marches every year until 1211. And certainly his concern was that things may become problematic and he wanted to continue to make sure that he had things under control. 
He, in fact, would go so far as to take possession of various parts of Wales from his own marcher lords, and he would continue to sort of eat up territory, uh, including the lordships of Radnor, of Ethel, of Bulleth, Brecon, Abergavenny, and the Gower. Uh, and as he gained all these new powers and new territories, of course, then it made it even more important for him to keep hold of them, and it became even more important for him to continue to press his advantage against the Welsh leadership. And we'll see this becomes an issue, because, of course, at the very same time that he's nabbing up these things, as we said earlier, you have Llewellyn working his way into grabbing territory in Powys. He starts to seize lands in southern Powys. He grabs other areas to the south and to the west. He takes Aberystwyth eventually and Cardigion. And all of this exchanging and grabbing of territory puts him in conflict with his father-in-law. And over about a four-year period, they've gone from being erstwhile allies, shall we call them, to being effectively very dangerous, very ambitious men who are coming to a head. And this is even before John has isolated himself against his own barons and lords in England. So he's already playing a lot of games against Llewellyn. And Llewellyn is trying to outwit him and outmatch him and was consistently trying to take more and more territory. And really, Powys, especially southern Powys, becomes sort of the the tipping point of a lot of the problems because it's an area that I think Llewellyn had, had ambitions for right from the word go because, of course, his, his mother's from that area. He's lived near or in that area most of his life, so you can kind of see where the association with that would come in and his desire for that territory would come in. And so this conflict in this area becomes incredibly important because the longer it goes on, the worse the issue is going to get going forward. Finally, it all explodes in 1211 uh, as John decides to invade Gwyneth. And it's the first real solid invasion of Gwyneth since 1165 with Henry II. And it actually got farther than Henry did, penetrating to Bangor, in which case uh, John had captured one of the the, uh, the bishop and captured Banger and burned it to the ground and effectively tried to wield his power. At one point, Llewellyn comes back and they end up surrounding John's castle and isolating him, and that continued battle. Eventually, what happens is, is because so many of the princes from the rest of Wales have allied against Llewellyn at this point, John actually wins the day against him. And in doing so, forces him back across the Conwy. And with that, he actually forces Llewellyn into an agreement that were basically bad terms for Llewellyn. Uh, in fact, Llewellyn has to get his wife, uh, John's daughter, to try and convince him to stop because at the moment that this is going on, he cannot seem to get him to push, stop the push forward. And it creates such a problem for Llewellyn that, that like I said, he basically looks for a end to the war in any means possible. So Joan becomes a key figure here in mollifying her father 
in dealing with her father and her husband to try and create a relationship between the two that will be long-term, at least stable, if nothing else. But in doing so, uh, it becomes a very lopsided victory for John. He claims in perpetuity the entire area of the four cantrips that we mentioned earlier. So basically between the Conwy and the D, he controls it. It is his land. It is King's land. Um, and not only that, but he then forces Llewellyn to agree that should Gwyneth not have an heir from Joan and and Llewellyn, that the kingdom itself would revert to the English throne. So effectively, the heir to England would become the king of Gwyneth, which is a horrific thought. If you're from Gwyneth and this is the situation, you can see how bad it must have been at that point. And of course, the other thing he rings out is like 40,000 head of, of various cattle and sheep and everything else. So it's a very punishing uh agreement, peace treaty, if you want to call it that. And it's one that I don't think either side must have thought they could live with. And eventually it would come to a head again because it's so one-sided. It almost guarantees future problems. And almost immediately within even a couple of years, you start to see problems mount because one of the problems, of course, being is that John puts leaders in charge in the four Andrews who are not well-versed in dealing with the Welsh. They think they have them pacified. They think they understand them. And in both cases, they don't. Um, in fact, they're, if anything, a disaster in the making. And it actually turns a lot of the Welsh who had actually fought against Llewellyn back into his side and into his camp against John. So if there's nothing else we can say about John, he was very consistent in making enemies of a lot of people. And because he would do this, it would, of course, create problems for his own kingdom and his own crown, which we'll talk a little bit about just to kind of discuss it because it is pertinent. But it also sets a pattern wherein we have the Welsh prince's okay with you attacking the other prince if it's not going to affect them. But the minute it starts to overly affect them, they suddenly become all very Welsh together and, hey, we're going to fight these English and then they fight back. And that largely is kind of what's happened for the last, I almost say 200 years. They kind of have this point where they, they disunify, they fight, they argue, they debate, they battle, they kill each other, they slaughter their, their families just to clear out, you know, contenders for their crowns. And then eventually it leads back into, oh, wait a second, there's these English guys and they're trying to cause trouble. So now we'll turn on them and they start to turn against them. And we see this sort of ebb and flow that will actually go throughout this century where you see the English make massive gains. They cut off. Like if you think about the fact that the, that they had grabbed more or less uh, South Powys, they had grabbed the eastern half of Gwynedd, going all the way to the border of Wales and England, all the way to the River Conwy, uh, then all the way down in the south. They control most of the south at this stage. So they control quite a lot of Wales. They basically have a horseshoe shape control across Wales, and only the very western kingdoms are really free from the English at this point in any respect. And even at that, they're still having to give liege lord 
to the king. They're still having to acknowledge the king is in charge. And really, one could argue this has been going on for quite some time, but it seems very pronounced at this stage. And for the next century, almost, this is what's going to be, if anything, getting tighter and tighter. The screws are growing and growing as the English put more and more pressure on the Welsh kings and Welsh princes to try and fit in. So the the ideas that you negotiate with others in their language doesn't come across. The, the whole idea of being fair and honorable kind of breaks in and of itself, as you can see with these kind of agreements. And really... What they end up doing is, like I said, they drive the Welsh population, who obviously are getting frustrated, back into their native rulers, and they revolt. So in the case of the Four Cantress, by 1212, uh, there was already rumblings, and eventually uh, they would explode, and we would see that uh, all of the Princes of Wales came into a confederation, and at that point, made an alliance with the King of France, much like their Scottish, and importantly, like their Scottish neighbors. Uh, the Welsh were starting to see the value of a French alliance. And this alliance will actually continue into the day of Owen Glyndwr, where the French become a key cog in his defense of his land um, for a short period of time during the earlier part of the 15th century. But Again, they try and make alliances basically to sort of defend their independence against John. Uh, and eventually, there, as I said, there becomes this point where the Welsh in the Four Cantrips revolt. They toss out the English and they basically go back into being controlled by the Gwyneth, a part of Gwyneth, and at the same time as this is happening, Llewellyn is joined by John's former ally, Maelgwyn, who I had mentioned was the king who had been involved with some of the things that were going on in the south, uh, as well as uh, probably his biggest nemesis in southern Powys, the interestingly named Gwen Winwin, uh, who is either lord or prince or king of southern powers it's hard to really be clear because everybody uses slightly different terminology and he ends up revolting against uh, john and so eventually uh, the king of england has to come in again and john is furious at this what he sees as betrayal he will then plan expeditions to try and end the independence of Wales. Uh, the Brute, or the Chronicles of the Princess, calls it the extermination of Wales. Uh, it does not go the way he thought it would, um, mostly because while uh, John is trying to work his way back into Wales, he does attack and take southern powers he kills and and slaughters much of the leadership in the process and regains control but at the same time Llewellyn is working with the barons of England to try and cause trouble for John who at this point is already isolating himself 
and has already got himself in trouble for various reasons, one of which is accusations of him sleeping around with their wives and their daughters, which was obviously a huge no-no. You can have pretty much sex with whoever, whoever you want at this stage in the Middle Ages, just not with other nobility's wives. That was pretty obviously a bad idea, and their daughters. And that part of it... That was the big no. Because, I mean, we know that there's bastards all over the place, to use that terminology, um, on all sides. I mean, Nest has relationships with Henry I. Uh, we have various bastard sons in Wales and bastard sons and daughters in England. I mean, Joan, for example, is a bastard daughter of John. So this was not out of the realms of what happened in the past. And... One could argue that Henry I and his progeny were a little, little bit like this, but John was a special side of hostile to rational thinking when it came to this idea, and he just seemed to like to annoy everyone. Um, and so, needless to say, they weren't very happy with him. And by 1212, it became a bit of a crisis, and he ends up... John, in this case, has to actually call off the Welsh expedition because he actually has to go into northern England to assert his own authority and deal with a lot of the problems he's having in England at this point, um, including dealing with uh, all sorts of issues with the nobility and with uh, the money lenders uh, who are mostly at this point Jewish for various political and religious reasons. And this will eventually lead to their expulsion, basically because the king can't pay his debt, so he decides the easiest thing to do is get rid of the bank. Um, and so there's all of this going on, and it will eventually lead to the barons revolting completely, and it will lead to the Magna Carta, because John just cannot make agreements stick to them. And he seems to be very vengeful when he makes peace treaties. I mean, that's the impression you get when you deal with his basically punishing uh, peace treaty with with uh, Llewellyn. It was obvious that he was not going to make this on good terms for the Welsh. I mean, that, that makes sense. But he basically did everything he can to try and stop Llewellyn from being a force to be reckoned with in Wales. And of course, in the process, made himself an enemy to Llewellyn and to the Welsh. And in the process of his other uh, tendencies and foolishness, made himself an enemy to his own nobility, who then turn on him. And eventually, this becomes a huge problem. And... Uh, because of that, he even gets in trouble with the church, and the church disowns him, and, and he gets into all sorts of problems with them, to the point where the church actually goes to Llewellyn and basically says, go take lands from the English, because the English leadership is bad and needs to be dealt with. So there's a bunch of things that are happening all at once, and eventually he will be defeated specifically because he loses the Angevin territory in France, John, I mean, at this point. And at that point, the lords have had enough. The nobles have had enough. And they force him into the Magna Carta, which is signed in 1215. And some have argued that, obviously, the, the fighting in Wales kicked all this off. And certainly his ability to enforce his will and enforce his what to that point was a supremely kingly role that he was to be 
in charge and you were just supposed to do what he asked and there was no real checks or balances against him and that all changed with the Magna Carta and we start to get these checks and balances against the English king. But at the same time for Wales, it gave them a respite from the English problems because up until that point, had John been able to continue the fight, had he been able to continue to push forward into Wales with the army he had, he actually had a military force that was bigger than what Edward used to defeat the Welsh later in this century and could have in all likelihood have taken Wales at that point and possibly done exactly what he was trying to do, which was to eliminate all native rulers from Wales. And the fact that he didn't is as much down to his own perfidy and arrogance as it is to the fact that he was dealing with Welsh united against him. And I think it's it's fascinating to sort of see how this went because this was probably the first sign that the English were starting to tire of negotiating with the Welsh native rulers and were starting to think, hey, what's the best way to deal with them? Just take them out. And I think this is kind of what happens in Scotland as well. I think when Edward I then, after he defeats the Welsh lords, turns north, it's certainly, I think, to kind of eliminate as many allies as the French could find and you know, kind of protect their backside while they go after the French and try and reclaim their territories. Because remember, at this point, up until now, the English monarchy was as much a French monarchy as it was an English monarchy, because there were still lands in England, in France that the English monarchs controlled. They still spoke French as their main language. English was only starting to become return as the language of the nobility shortly after this. Uh, in the Hundred Years' War, specifically because of the this issue of this fight with the French, it all of a sudden becomes important to speak the language of the people you're trying to motivate to fight them. And all of this starts to kick off around then. So there, it, it's interesting to sort of see what sets the pattern for the 13th century, how you can look at John as sort of an example of where Edward is going to go. Because John builds castles, John starts to build the ring of moats that are to sort of pen in the native rulers. And he starts to rebuild castles that had been taken down like Aberystwyth. He comes in and tries to reinsert authority across Wales by assuming and taking over lands. He takes away lands from rightfully ruled areas such as the Four Cantrifts and tries to express his dominance even over the marcher lords so this is someone who is not messing around he's not there to be uh kingly or noble in the word in the adjective of the word as opposed to the noun and he was definitely looking to finish off one problem child and this is a point in time where England is on the ascendancy. It's becoming, at that stage, one of the big powers in Western Europe and is going to be a dominant force for many years to come. And it won't be until really towards the end of the Hundred Years' War, almost a century and a half later, where things start to unravel and they start to fall apart and you start to see the English crown uh, get quite tarnished leading into the War of the Roses. So with all of that said and done, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, 
be sure to check us out online at distractionsmedia.com for all the various things we do. And if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast uh, at gmail.com, at uh, Welsh History Pod on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.